More people than ever are vacationing in Spain. Of course, it wasn't all that long ago that Spain was a very different country. 40 years ago, if you didn't go to mass, you were shot. So try to see Spain with that point of view. A country that has changed from a very restrictive to today, which is a perfectly free country where you can do whatever you want to do. Coming up, three of our favorite Spanish tour guides help you plan a visit and share how people are viewing the separatist movement in Catalonia. We think first about our local identity, and then after that, we may be Spaniards. And as a Spaniard, I have to be critical and to admit that I am a little bit sad about that. Dave Fox loves the energy of his new home in Saigon, and he recommends you check out the lively scene on Bui Vien Street. A lot of younger Vietnamese people have started coming there as a way to connect with foreigners and, and practice their English, and it's a way that you can really authentically connect with local people and learn about their lives. Let's go to Spain and Saigon in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Tips on tapas, trains, and national identity to help you fully enjoy a visit to Spain this year. That's just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start the hour on the other side of the world, in Vietnam. When travel writer Dave Fox first visited Ho Chi Minh City, he liked it so much, he decided to move there. A good internet connection keeps him active with his online travel writing seminars. If you ever get to visit the city that locals still call Saigon, Dave insists you must spend some time on Bui Vien Street, what they call the Street of the Foreigners. It used to be mostly a place where backpackers hung out, but it's become a lively scene for local young people and families. Dave's even working on a book that tells the stories of the people he's met there. Dave, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So, Dave, tell me about your book, first of all. The book is, it's the biography of a street, and it's a street that on the surface looks like just a big tourist party. But what I discovered after spending a lot of time there is that there's this fascinating mix of stories there, some really wonderful stories, some really uh, very sad situations of the people. Some of them are about the people who live in the neighborhood, the street vendors who go through and sell things to the tourists. Uh, but one thing that's really nice, it's something that's happened over the years. It used to be when I started visiting Vietnam in, in 2008, it was mostly foreigners who were going out and, and drinking there in these cheap pop-up bars where people just put a few plastic chairs and tables out mm -hmm. on the sidewalk and, and they sell cheap beers. But a lot of younger Vietnamese people have started coming there as a way to connect with foreigners and, and practice their English. And it's a way that you can really authentically connect with local people and learn about their lives. You've got this connection of the rich world and the developing world. And it's in a tourist ghetto, what a lot of people call it, where all the kids go for cheap drinks and so on. Mm -hmm. Is this an uh, expose about the dark side of this garish connection between filthy rich traveling kids and desperate poor people? Or is it a celebration of two worlds coming together? Uh, the answer to that is yes. It is both of those things. And so I, I do get into, you know, a lot of these these street vendors who are living on maybe $5 a day and trying to feed kids on that. And tourists tend to push them away. And so it's it's learning their stories, telling their stories, and what are their lives like, and how did they end up here? I think that they're often sort of, we forget that they're, they're human beings, and they're struggling. And yes, they might be pestering us to buy bootlegged books or something, but they're really just trying to feed their kids. So I do have some of that in there, but there's also a lot of joy in the street. You know, one thing I love about this neighborhood, a lot of tourist neighborhoods, it is only tourists. And this is still a vibrant local community. There are all these little alleyways that shoot off from Buivien Street. And you can wander through this labyrinth of alleyways and look into people's homes. And people are, you know, lounging on hammocks in their living rooms or cooking lunch out on the street and on hibachis and things like that. Okay, I'm going to close my eyes and hold your hand. And you're going to take me on a little 100-yard walk off of the main drag through an alley and, and poking around. Tell me what we're, what we're experiencing. Okay, the first thing you need to do if your eyes are closed is listen very carefully because you're going to hear a lot of motorbikes coming by. 
and you need to stay out of their way. <laughs> Over the years, the tourism has started to spill into what I call the labyrinth fialis that surround Weavian Street. And so you now do see some guest houses and some, some little so bars and restaurants. A lot of yeah. $10 a night kind of crash pads. Exactly, yeah, you see a lot of that. But also, like I said, families just living their lives. And it's interesting, certain alleys are full of tourists and other alleys are completely void of tourists. And I've talked to the people who live there and they've sort of tried to steer it in that direction. Now, wait, I'm still a little nervous about these motorcycles because I've got images of streets teeming with motorcycles. And what are the, like, are there unwritten rules for the traffic? Uh, how does it, how does the chaos not end up with everybody in the gutter? The traffic is crazy. I've heard it likened before to a school of fish where you see them, you know, thousands of fish swimming in the water and somehow they never bump into each other. But when you get to a busy intersection, many of the intersections don't have traffic lights Everybody just goes. And if you're turning left, you know, here in the States, if you're turning left, you wait for the oncoming traffic first. There, everyone goes for it. They weave through each other, and you wonder how they do it. Somehow they make it work. What's getting tricky now is that as the economy improves, we're seeing more cars on the road. And there, oh, are, a lot of, no. there are a lot of new drivers, and they're driving their cars just like they drove their motorbikes. My goodness. Now, I think part of the challenge for any traveler is to humanize the district you're visiting, and this is what your book is all about, I would imagine, is humanizing exactly. this street. Give us a few concrete examples of people you've met who might help us understand that this is, this is real people. One of my most fascinating and, and sad stories was with a, a guy I met. I wandered in. He had a little drink shop in one of these little alleyways and uh, went in and, and just got a beer there with a, with a Vietnamese friend of mine, and we were chatting with him, and it turned out it was his family home. He had lived, he was in his late 50s, and he'd lived there his entire life and turned it into a shop, but when his parents passed away, they divided it between four brothers, and two of the brothers decided they wanted to sell it. So he, one week later, was going to have to move out of the home he had always lived his life in. The prices in the neighborhood have become astronomical, so if you own a home there, you can sell it for a lot, but he just didn't want to leave. Um, I've also interviewed... A heroin dealer who uh, he he spent six years in prison for selling heroin. When we hear of a heroin dealer, of course, we think low life scum here in the United States, and it's it's a terrible, terrible drug that kills a lot of people. But when you stop to sit down with this guy and say, "Can you tell me your story?" and you hear about the severe poverty he grew up in, and the fact that selling drugs was the only way that he could see a way out to feed his children, it was a really gripping story. And an interesting offshoot of that is his son is a policeman. And his son knows what he does for a living, and, and they're both kind of okay with that. There are kids who do these fire-swallowing acts on the street, and then they come around asking for tips. You know, they're kind of busking, but it's incredibly dangerous. They gargle with kerosene, and then they spit balls of fire into the air, and it's terrible to see. Many of them are, are living, there is a guy who's controlling what they're doing, and he keeps a lot of their money, and he gives them a, a place to stay, and he gives them food to eat. But then he sends them out on the street to do these, these terrible, dangerous acts. And, uh, yeah, so you see a lot of that. And there's probably this thing where some people are just there from before and they're still there now with all this change. I can imagine somebody who's had a little stall in the corner selling goodies or drinks or soup or something and 30 years later doing the same thing. One of my favorite interviews, there's a woman, she's kind of a legend on the street. Everybody calls her Basau, which means Grandma Six because she's got six kids and she runs a beer place. She sells what's called Biahoy. It's tap draft beer that's motorbiked in every day. And yeah, she's been in the neighborhood for, for decades, and I've talked to her about, you know, how it's changed, and she's got uh, feelings both good and bad. She's very happy to have the tourists there because it has improved the economy for a lot of people and improved the lives uh, for a lot of people. She's got to live with it. She probably doesn't have the wherewithal to leave, so this is where she has to live. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. and her and her daughters now uh, run, run the beer stall as well, so it's a family business that's still going. 
travel writer Dave Fox is taking us to Bouyvienne Street right now on Travel with Rick Steves. It's a fast-changing neighborhood with many stories to tell in the middle of Saigon's Backpacker District. Dave also hosts travel writing workshops, and he provides advice for writing memorable travel journals in his book, Globe Jotting. His website is globejotting.com. Hey, Dave, by the way, you and your wife live in Saigon right now, and it's sort of, there's a new age, what, what do you call it, uh, digital nomads, where you, if you're connected and doing writing, you can live anywhere and, and be turning in your material. What's this digital nomad business in Saigon? Yeah, there are, and it's a popular base for digital nomads because it, the, the cost of living is so low there. There's a lot of people these days who have online businesses that they can do. It might be blogging, it might be web design or, or tech stuff, and they work on their computers and they can do it anywhere in the world. In my case, I've, I teach travel writing courses and humor writing courses, and I've got online versions. I do one-on-one writer coaching, and it's great. I talk to my students on Skype. They might be here in, in Seattle or somewhere in North America, and we meet on Skype, and it's just like we're in the same room together. So, so. this is a growing trend. There are people like you who do this kind of teaching and writing online, and it, you're virtually everywhere, anywhere you want to be, anytime. Exactly. And I'm not so much of a nomad as, as many of these people. Some of them right. are just constantly moving every couple of months. Uh, my wife teaches at an international school in Saigon. And so, you know, we have a house there and, mm-hmm. and we are in the same spot all the time. But yeah, there are other people who... Yeah, a lot of people just, they, they live in hotels backpack, yeah. all, the, all year long. They, yeah. they probably pay for hotels, but a typical American would pay for rent. Yeah, or less. Or less. Yeah. yeah. Living in places like Saigon? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All over Southeast Asia. Yeah. Okay. So we're in Saigon and we're in this wonderful street that you have just been so enamored with. The working title of your book is The Ghosts of Bouyvienne Street, Saigon. And what's the story with the ghosts of this street? I came up with the title originally because there's a bar on the street that is believed to be haunted. It's this, you can't miss it, it's got a four-story neon buffalo head, and you can see it for blocks away, but it used to be a hotel. It used to be my favorite hotel in Saigon, and there was a grisly murder in the hotel in 2001, and a lot of people believe that the bar is now haunted by the ghost of the guy who was murdered. So that's where I came up with the original idea, but I use that term ghosts in a broader sense. Ghosts are also uh, the unfulfilled potential of some of these uh, people who, you know, the street vendors, had they been born in a different situation, had they not been born into such an impoverished life, what might they have done in the world? The ghosts are those those unfulfilled people. The ghosts might even be the, the building I was telling you about earlier, the house of this guy, uh, the building becomes a ghost. So ghosts are just things that may exist in the ether on some other dimension, uh, but we can't see them. What's something that's um, hopeful and that sort of warms your heart from what you've learned on this street in, in Ho Chi Minh City? Well, a lot of the people that I meet there, and particularly, again, these these places where you go drink at night, you get a lot of Vietnamese younger people coming in there ambitious. They're eager. Half the population of Saigon is under the age of 30, so it's a very young population, but they're wanting to connect and they're, they're very upbeat people. It's a very upbeat way of thinking in the country as a whole, in, in the, at least in the younger generation. So just being around those people and, and kind of chatting with them, getting to know their lives. Are they generally well-educated and connected on the internet and do they know what's going on outside of their border? Yeah, the internet, you know, the government occasionally will do something to block the internet, but there are ways that people get around that and they get news. And 
So, so as a traveler, we can connect with them, and they can relate to us, and they know what's going on. Yeah, and you know... And they just have to live with the reality that they're in an emerging... They're living in a, a society in transition. Yeah, you know, one thing also is, is that a lot of people, you know, they're, they're curious about what's going on in the outside world, and a lot of these people can't afford to travel to the outside world. So when we, we can bring it to them, mm-hmm. and tourism becomes a two-way street then. You know, I end up talking with people, and they're learning about the West. They're learning about different ways of thinking, and not just from me, but from these hundreds of other tourists who come in. And so there's this great exchange of information that goes on there, which is really better than the internet in a lot I of ways. I love that. Bringing the world in to Ho Chi Minh City. Yeah. Or when we can say Saigon. Yeah, absolutely. Either one. Dave Fox, fascinating. And best wishes with your book. Uh, when your book comes out, uh, The Ghosts of Bui Vien Street, what's going to be on the cover? What If you could have the best image possible on the cover that really shares the spirit of your experience there, what would be the image? I think what I would want to capture is probably a street vendor uh, because a lot of them are in the book and I want to honor them. But also, I, I imagine a picture at night with a lot of brightly colored lights and a blur of motorbikes riding by. A blur of motorbikes enjoying Ho Chi Minh City. Dave Fox, thanks so much. Thank you. Since recording our interview, Dave Fox has checked in with us to let us know that fast-changing Saigon has made Bui Bien Street a pedestrian-only zone on weekend nights. Dave expects that his book of stories of the people he's met in Saigon will be released later this year. He's also hosting a monthly podcast on expatradio.com. We have links with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Up next, tour guides from Spain. Take your calls at 877-333-7425 as we get up to date on Visiting Spain. It's Travel with Rick Steves. With a constitutional crisis over Catalonians who want to form a separate country, Spain has been in the news a lot lately. Tourism figures for last year show that Spain has just edged out the United States for second place in the number of foreign visitors for the year. France, by the way, comes in first. Let's explore what people are enjoying about Spain with the help of three guides who make it their living to introduce travelers to the glories of España. Federico Garcia Barroso, Francisco Glaria, and Amanda Buttinger. Hola. 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 Hola, Rick. So just so we know who we have here, uh, Francisco, you're from Basque country, is that right? Yes, I was born in Pamplona. Kind of the Basque country because we are culturally Basque country. Politically, we're not. We're in the middle of the separatism issue that's going on in Catalonia, so we're... Kind of a strange in the middle there. Okay. And you are in Running of the Bulls City. Yes, the city of the Running of the Bulls. And Federico, you are born and raised in Madrid. Madrid. That's my city. Madrid, the capital of Spain. There's a nickname for people born in Madrid, isn't there? Cats. We are cats. Why is that? Well, it's all about that wall, that in those medieval ages, Muslims were in one side, Christians were in another side, and they all have some relatives and friends, and then in the night they used to climb up the wall like cats and jumping over. And just because oh. of that, people who have several generations in the city, you see, we were, you we had were a wall cats. that separated the Christians and the Muslims, yeah. and you crawled over it at night to get together and uh, exactly. have your paseo. And exactly, <laughs> uh, kind of a <laughs> night paseo. Yeah, I like that. And Amanda, you're 20 years now in Madrid, right? Yes, yes. What's your story? How'd you end up in Madrid? I started a master's program over in Madrid, and I mm-hmm. ended up staying. I ended, ended up, up falling in love. So you're sort love. of the mouse. Yes. You could say that. I am the mouse. The mouse. and Who who now has a cat. Two <laughs> a little family of cats. That's wonderful. Yeah. Hey, when you're in Madrid and you look out at um, issues happening in Europe, what's the most uh, pertinent challenge that Spain is facing vis-a-vis the European Union? 
Well, right now we're uh, going through a major issue with the Catalan separatism, uh-huh. uh, also involving the European Union. I think it's reasonable to give people a chance to vote if they want to stay with the country or mm-hmm. not. Catalans voted to leave, mm-hmm. and Madrid basically sent in the army and arrested the government. That's mm-hmm. a little simplistic, mm-hmm. but that's a pretty harsh crackdown. It is, but the the manner in which things proceeded is very complex and not so simplified in saying, you know, one piece of democracy wants to do this and the other piece is coming in and cracking down. There's a lot more involved in that. that. And there is the dimension that if you break away from Spain, your people might assume you're going to be in the EU, Mm -hmm. but you might not be. You're you're not in the EU. You break away. Mm -hmm. You've Mm -hmm. got to earn the EU, and that's Mm -hmm. not Mm -hmm. a slam dunk. No, no. And I know uh, several of my friends in Catalonia are feeling trapped between two nationalisms. It's tough when the vote is all or nothing. Exactly. That was the problem with Scotland. People didn't want all or nothing. Mm -hmm. There was Mm -hmm. somewhere in the middle, but you had to vote complete independence or complete status quo. Mm -hmm. And there's got to be a middle ground. Francisco, you've grown up on the edge of Basque country. You know well with the Basque struggles for independence. Is there sort of a built-in automatic camaraderie and support for people in Basque country when people in Catalonia want to establish their independence? Well, right now in the Basque country, all the separatist movements are very, very, very quiet. Right. We're waiting to see what Catalonia, what they do, and oh, interesting. what happens to them. Then they will decide to go out or not. So Madrid knows that how it responds to Catalonia will instruct the Basque people on what's their next move. To me personally, I think that what's going on in Catalonia is a major thing in Europe because all the different separatists, northern Italy, uh, the Flemish, all of these other little parts, they're waiting to see what happens in Catalonia. So how Madrid plays this is quite a chess game. Yes. It is, I mean, there's much more in the game than just Catalonia. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Spain and what's new in Spain. We're joined by Amanda Buttinger, Francisco Gloria, and Federico Garcia Barroso, three friends and tour guides from Spain. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Brandon's calling in from Jonesboro in Arkansas. Brandon, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. Uh, Yes, I was planning a uh, trip to Barcelona. We're going to stop there for a few days. And what I'm wondering, with the uh, developments that are taking place with uh, Catalonia and you know, them seceding or creating uh, a little bit of distance between them and Spain. Is there anything that we should be watching for as tourists in Barcelona or things that we should try to avoid or ways that we can kind of, you know, immerse ourselves in the culture but still not run into uh, any of the demonstrations or things that are going on? Yeah, Brandon, that's a very reasonable concern. And um, the big question is, as a tourist, what is the impact for me or you going to Barcelona or Catalan if you want to avoid the demonstrations, or maybe you want to be part of the demonstrations. I mean, that is an option. Federico, what would your advice be to a traveler? Barcelona is a big city. Demonstrations are there. There are many other places in the city where you don't really need to see or to be there in those demonstrations, you see. I would say that it's not really unsafe, you see. We have also in Madrid many demonstrations, you see, mm-hmm. and, and they are there. But, but, you know, we talk about big cities. And that is not necessarily affecting the, the places where those monuments are, and museums are located. And it is a healthy European trait to just get out in the streets and demonstrate. Francisco, uh, what would your advice be to somebody heading for Barcelona but nervous because of the headlines? You shouldn't be. I mean, really, Barcelona, it's a very safe city. And the demonstrations all around Europe, they're very, very safe. It's, it's just, routine. It's a routine. I mean, for us, it's a very basic thing. It's a way of telling the people, hey, we don't 
believe in this. It's how so, you say, wake up. There's yeah. a, this mm-hmm. is a serious issue for us. I was in Barcelona the day after the election, and there was demonstrations Hybrid everywhere. Demonstrations. And I got off the cruise ship. I happened to come by cruise ship, and I had to go somewhere by taxi, and the cabbie simply said, oh, I can't drive that way because there's a demonstration. So he dropped me on a, a different spot, and I, I walked a few blocks. But it was exciting, and I, I didn't even see the demonstrations because I wasn't interested in I had other stuff I needed to do. As tour guides, and we have tour guides all over Europe uh, working on this, there's going to be demonstrations. They advertise these demonstrations because they want everybody to be there. Mm -hmm. A great thing about advertising the demonstration is if you want to be part of the scene, you can go there. But if you want to avoid it, and I would assume if you're a tour guide with a bunch of Americans, you'd want to avoid it. Oh, of course. You of just course. rearrange your day. Amanda, what's there your... Are, there are actually special permits that you must get to hold a demonstration. Okay. So it is a certain time, a certain place. So it's very organized, and the police officers and the city organizers are also there as yeah. well to so make sure that they're... it's not a riot. It's no, a demonstration. No, exactly. Brandon, I think it's totally unanimous here. I like to go to demonstrations. I think they're exciting. But I'm thankful that uh, tour guides know that we want to minimize that kind of excitement. There's plenty mm-hmm. of excitement otherwise. And I wouldn't worry at all if I was you thinking of going to, to Catalonia, okay? Okay, thanks, Rick. Thanks Thank for you your call. Tour guides from Spain, Amanda Buttinger and Federico Garcia Barroso from Madrid, and Francisco Glaria from Pamplona are taking your calls at 877-333-7425. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Diane is calling from The Villages in Florida. It's wonderful to speak with my idols. Forgive me if I get tongue-tied. Oh, well, we're happy you gave us a call. Do you have some travel dreams uh, about to take place? Yes, we are headed for Spain and Portugal. And last time we were in Spain, we are a couple of uh, retired teachers, my sister and I. And we would go into a tapas bar and not know what to order. So we would just go with the cheapest thing we could get because we were always on a budget. Uh-huh. And we wonder if you have any tips on how to order in a tax bar. I think that's one of the most important skills of traveling in Spain is being comfortable in a tapas bar because I'm like you. I, I probably just speak a few words of Spanish, but I want to eat the Spanish culture in that wonderful social scene. Spain is notorious for eating lunch really late and eating dinner really late, and it takes a long time because Spaniards love to enjoy the moment. So unless you want to eat lunch from 2 until 4 or dinner from 10 until midnight, I like <laughs> to eat in a tapas bar because you can go into any bar, and a bar is not a, a dark tavern without kids uh, like we think of in the United States. A bar is the neighborhood living room with a lot of good food and drink. Kids are welcome. Mm-hmm. And for most of the day, they've got beautiful tapas on plates just spread out all over the bar or wonderful menus, and these are little munchies. Spaniards would not generally think of it as a meal. They think of it as a, an appetizer or something. But for most Americans, two or three tapas is a meal. Mm-hmm. The great thing is it's cheap, it's characteristic, you're surrounded by locals, you can have it any time of day, and uh, a lot of it is just point at what you see that looks interesting and, and give it a whirl. Amanda, what's a tip for tapas for Diane? When my parents come out, I always tell them to look around the bar and, and look at different people's food. So you can kind of get a sampling of, of what is being offered or maybe one specific dish that is always coming out of the kitchen. Mm, because a top of bar could have a specialty. Exactly. Sometimes exactly. they have paella that just comes out That's at random right. times. That's right. If you've got a fresh paella coming out, anybody who likes mm-hmm. paella wants to drop mm-hmm. what they're doing and get a plate of that. One other thing uh, that I think is important is to not go when you're very, very hungry. Because you get really stressed out when you go in and there are tons and tons of people and 
you don't know how it works. Maybe have a little piece of something before you go in and then and then attack it because I find that stress is Do you think lowered. of it as a mobile meal or stay in one spot? Because I know it's quite reasonable to enjoy one place for half an hour and then walk a block and drop it in it another place. It can be mobile. Good. It depends on your crowd. I think a lot of uh, Spaniards, they're very strict on one drink, one tapa, and then move to the next is one. Right? And one drink, one tapa, and then move to the next one. But if the conversation's really good, sometimes you just get the otra. Francisco. We're with American people. We always say that you're extremely polite people, and you make wonderful cues. A cue meaning we stand in line. You stand in line. You don't stand in line. You just have to go to the counter, have eye contact with the waiter, and point. For the waiter, the waiter is interested in moving uh, food, and it's kind of a drag because there's going to be a language barrier thing here. So be bold. You belong there. You're legitimate. Crowd right up to the bar. Get eye contact. And, and say what you want. <laughs> and be strong about it. Patatas bravas. Patatas bravas. Oh, that's good. Pimiento de padrón. Be careful with that. Because <laughs> when they're hot, they're hot. Okay. This is one thing, Diane, you need a little vocabulary to break through and know what you like. When I'm in your neck of the woods up in uh, Basque Country, spider crab, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is the word for spider crab? Called cabracho. Yeah. Oh, if you have spider crab, oh, man. Changuro. What Changuro. Is, is, that spi- mm-hmm. is that another kind of spider? Yeah. So if you know your favorite word, Go for it. I mean, there are many tapas all around Spain, but the basic ones, for example, you have a tortilla de patatas, which is a Spanish omelette. Uh-huh. It's, uh, That's easy. Potatoes. That's my go. If I want a quick meal, yeah, potato tortilla. It's, it's a potato omelette. Yeah. And you get a, it's like a slice of pie or quiche, mm-hmm. and that with a drink, and you've okay. got yourself a meal. A That's meal. it. Yeah, it's easy. It's fast. Now, you come from Basque country, and Basque bars have a unique way of um, serving and, and collecting money. It's called pinchos. Pincho is like a toothpick. Uh-huh. Okay, so most of the pinchos, they usually have toothpicks on top of them. Uh-huh. So what you do is you get from the counter what you want, and you should save the toothpicks. And at the end, you show the, the waiter the toothpicks, and they will so say, oh, five toothpicks or whatever. And so it's one euro per toothpick or yeah. 150 per toothpick. Per toothpick, and, and that's what you pay. Federico, what's right. your tip? I really love the three the highlights of Spanish cuisine. I would say gazpacho. Coming from southern Spain, that refreshing vegetable soup. Veg- yes, the Spanish V8. You see, I mean, with those yeah. vegetables and and so refreshing. You see, in summertime, I love gazpacho. I love tortilla, as we said. You know that we have to tell Americans that it's completely different to the Mexican one that they know. It would be somehow a kind of a Spanish frittata. You see, uh-huh. the, the Spanish tortilla, and of course the paella. I like the one, the black paella, one. Paella, gazpacho, tortilla. tortilla. Those see, three. You got three words like that. You're doing pretty good. One thing I've learned, especially in Basque Country, you've got all of the easy dishes in front of you, but you've got a blackboard where they've got cooked dishes. Yes. And the gourmets will know not what's already pre-cooked, but they'll order something that's going to be cooked to order. And that can be one of the best plates you'll have anywhere in Spain. That is going to be amazing. And, Diane, you mentioned you're on a budget. Amanda, I, I have this personal challenge because Spaniards usually buy a glass of wine and they have enough confidence where a free tapa comes with it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's human nature for a barista to think a tourist will not know that and see if they'll just take the wine without a tapa. I find if you order the drink before you order the food and you stand there like, okay, come on, bring me my little plate of food, it's supposed to come free with the drink. But if you order a plate and a drink, you will not get the free plate that comes with the drink. And That's true, and that could be even for a Spaniard going in. They might just want the full meal. They might not get the tapa every time they get the, the full meal in front of them. But yeah. usually you can go up there and, and be aggressive and say, ¿Y la tapa? 
<laughs> and the tapa. They will take a little while to get that out to you, but right. sometimes. But you need to you need to go up and, and, and say, "Y la tapa." Diane, one last <laughs> word: life is too short to eat cheap ham when you're in Spain. So true. Pay a little extra for the ham, and I would say pay a little extra for the red wine too. I mean, you can get a glass for a dollar. Why not splash out and spend three and have a glass of wine well, you'll really love? I think I can afford a dollar. All right. <laughs> have a great time. <laughs> Thank Thanks you for your so call. Thank you so much for your tips, Rick. Wonderful talking with you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Amanda Buttinger, Francisco Glaria, and Federico Garcia Barroso. We're talking about Spain. Jill is calling in from Montreal in Canada. Hi, Jill. Hi, Rick. I'm planning a trip this year to Madrid and to the south, to Andalusia, to Granada, Cordoba, and Sevilla, hopefully to the southern coast. And I'm vegetarian, and I think that's a little hard in Spain. It was in France, and it's getting easier. But in Spain, I was in Barcelona uh, a few years ago and had a lot of trouble getting fresh, delicious, authentic Spanish vegetarian food. So I was wondering if you could give any tips about how to order vegetarian food, what kind of dishes are vegetarian uh, that, that don't have meat, fish, or poultry. Now you, and you've raised the bar. You don't just want vegetarian. You want fresh, authentic... Spanish. <laughs> and and, and uh, Spanish, yeah. Okay, so this is a very good challenge. And delicious. And delicious. <laughs> so if we want good vegetarian food, Federico... There are, believe me, many, many choices, many places. I mean, I know in my city in Madrid, very good, very good vegetarian restaurants. There are several choices, not exclusively downtown in many other places. Some of them are right now very cool and very trendy. Some people yeah. that are not even vegetarian, they go to those places. And also I have to tell you that in any restaurant, they will always offer to you, obviously, a couple of choices, you see. In the last years, I have to say that I, there are, in my city, there are many places. I know some of them that are really, really good. Even uh -huh. people who say, oh, you know, vegetarian restaurant, why? And then they go there and say, uh -huh. wow, we're going to come back here. I've been you to see. some of those in Madrid. I, and I've had vegetarian cafeterias, which are just sort of cheap and forgettable. But there are gourmet vegetarian restaurants. Get some information before you go to the town. It's quite easy to find that online or with your guidebook. Amanda, what are a couple of dishes that would be Spanish and tasty and vegetarian I think, also? I think we do the three-part meals quite often in the middle of the day. The first dish, the second dish, and then the dessert. And the first dish, it can typically be a vegetable soup, mm -hmm. like a cream soup. And that often does not have meat in it, not even the broth. So the cream vegetable soups, vegetable paellas. Uh, the tortilla mm -hmm. de patata, which we talked about yeah, earlier, yeah. that's a basic and a classic. And one thing, important thing that you probably already know is sin, which means without. Ah, sin. Sin is without. So you can do sin jamón, sin carne, sin pollo. Sin gas when you're having sin water. Sin gas. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So sin is a good sin carne. <laughs> exactly. So um, I think one thing important, I'm, I'm always struggling with this, Jill, because I don't speak the languages. If I have something important I need to communicate, I have it written on a little piece of paper in the local language by a local person at your hotel or something and make it really, really explicit. Show that to your waiter and you should be okay. Francisco, any other thoughts about vegetarian eating in Spain? As I'm from the north, the tapas is a major thing. In all the bars, in all the restaurants, you're going to find vegetarian tapas. Because I mean, there's a lot of vegetarian diners. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is that you can have pisto, which is P-I-S-T-O, which is like a mixed vegetable broth. Mm -hmm. or something. It's very good. Okay, uh -huh. so 
Uh, we, we eat a lot of mushrooms and wild mushrooms. And, and the padrón. pimiento del padrón. <laughs> pimiento del padrón. I love it. It is the most beautiful little green peppers cooked with salt and oil. And and it's like roulette, isn't it? It's sort of like tasty, spicy roulette. Yeah. Okay. Only one out of a hundred, it's hot. Okay, Really but hot. When they're hot, they're really hot. I have here a personal thing with you, Rick. The first time I met you, you said, okay, I want to go for pimientos del padrón. I was like, okay, you know what? It's a Russian roulette. You, I love them. Okay, good. So we went to this bar. We hit it, pimientos del padrón. I got one. I bited it, and it was the hot one. <laughs> one and you were in front. I was like, oh, my God, I think I'm going to cry. I was <laughs> trying to control it. Was like, it was horrible. I was like, oh, it was fun. It's worth the risk. And just the thought that you're about to bite into something explosively hot makes it even more fun. Hey, Jill, there's some ideas for you to enjoy vegetarian uh, dining in Spain. Really helpful. Thank you so much. Happy travels. I'm looking forward to that. Thanks for your Thank call. Thank you. There's still a lot to talk about with our guides on what you should know when you're visiting Spain this year. We're at 877-333-RICK on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. We're looking at what's up in Spain right now on Travel with Rick Steves with three of our favorite tour guides from Spain. Federico Garcia Barroso, Francisco Gloria, and Amanda Buttinger are experts at showing visitors the beautiful sights and culture of Spain. They're also updating us on the issues people are talking about in the cafes and streets of Spain this year. In Europe right now, there's a lot of uh, stress because of populist movements coming. And I think in Hungary and in Poland, they've got a far-right-wing government. Uh, Britain just voted to leave the EU. What are the stress points in Spain? Is, is there anything percolating like this, Amanda? Uh, the Catalan movement. Uh, there's a Catalan independence movement and separat okay. separatist movement. That's been in the news. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but beyond that, beyond just that? as far as... Uh, and the, on the, the opposite end, on the and, opposite end uh, for example, in, I'm sure in Navarra and Pamplona and uh, in Madrid, we see a lot of uh, nationalists, Spanish nationalists, so a lot of Spanish flags, maybe not a movement towards the monarchists movement, but expressing what was already there, people who believe in the monarchy that were a little bit quiet or just kind of kept to themselves and now are feeling that they can express themselves even more so this, flying that flag. Is this stoked by a frustration on the part of workers who can't get jobs or is this stoked by refugees that are coming in or is it stoked by trade policies that would favor Germany or what, what are the roots of these feelings? I personally think that worldwide there's a movement that everybody's beginning to not complain, but to say enough is enough. You know, here in the United States, you have all of these movements, the Me Too movement, uh, women rights. So in all around the world, this, uh, all of these things that are going People on, are speaking we, out. we need to speak out. I mean, this is, I think, what Internet is giving us. It's giving us freedom to mm. get information and to speak out. And globalization kind of accelerates some of these yeah. problems. So in Spain, we're beginning, not to be divided, but we're beginning to be able to say, okay, I'm here, I'm pro-Catalonia, I'm pro-Spain. We have this left-wing uh, political party called Podemos. They're very left-handed, okay? So they're very interesting going that way. Personally, I'm not that way, but there's a lot of people that mm -hmm. believe in that, yeah. and it's perfect. You know, Federico, when I think of Spain, I think the two most powerful secession um, movements would be in Catalonia and in Basque Country. They happen to be the economic uh, powerhouses of Spain. Is one reason why Spain is so adamant about keeping them on board is because it would just be expensive to leave them from their industry point of view? 
Of course, it's basically all about the the money. Really, we have because to, Catalan may be subsidizing Andalusia, Basque Country may be subsidizing Andalusia with the federal taxing. Yeah, but we also have to consider that many of those Andalusian workers are there in Catalonia That's working. Right. Exactly, yeah. you see. You know, it's actually a kind of a deep debate. You see, if we think about as a Spaniard, I think sometimes that these things are not actually happening in France. You see, and there they have the French Catalonia, the French Basque Country, uh-huh. and it's actually happening in Spain. You see, in Spain, is that uh, because there's different national policies? Of course, of course, different policies. Um, absolutely, I really think that we have a problem in Spain. You know, so France and, France respects its um, diversity a little more. Well, what I say, what I have to say is that when you go to France and you ask those people, okay, what are you? They say they're essentially French people. Right. And then immediately after they think about their local roots, those roots as a sign of pedigree. But in Spain, unfortunately, we do it in the opposite way. We think first about our local identity and then after that, we may be Spaniards. And Ah. that is really a problem, a social problem that we have in Spain from many centuries ago. You see, this is one of the reasons also, just one of the reasons of the Spanish Civil War and some conflicts that we had before, you see. And as a Spaniard, I have to be critical and to admit that I am a little bit sad about that. So maybe Spain is working to get over the scar tissue of its civil war to this day. You know, when when I go to Spain, I'm always fascinated by Franco. You could call him a fascist dictator, and he lasted, what, until the 1970s. And a lot of families were deeply divided, brothers fighting brothers over this. Today, is there any residue of the... Franco party and the Democratic Party, uh, is there? does this survive at all in Spain? Just a minority, a minority right. of Franco supporters are still there, just a minority, you see. And maybe there are other people that they don't really dare to say openly that they we were happier in those times of dictatorship, you right. see. Is that related to the monarchists? Because some people are more in favor of the monarchy. Would they also be favorable to Franco's rule? Yes, some of those. Like, no, so that's the right wing, basically. Exactly, the right, the right. right wing, exactly. The extreme right wing, because there are many other moderate, moderate uh, right. Francisco, you're shaking your head. What is your <laughs> thoughts? Okay, I don't consider my... I love the monarchy. I really yeah. think the monarchy... It's one of the things that unites Spain, uh-huh. but I don't consider myself Franco supporter or anything oh, like that. Okay. I think that Franco, it's a, an issue that's in the air. It's like the elephant in the room. It's always there. I mean, it's, it's always, always there, yeah. behind in our yeah. minds. I mean, I was born with Franco. So yeah. I lived five years of Franco. Obviously, I was a kid, but I was educated. I was brought up with a Franco mind. Uh-huh. And there are things that I still cannot do. What is a Franco mind? It's a very conservative, very restrictive mind. You know, so for example, you respect ne- the federal government, respect the church. Yeah. So for example, something as stupid as you will never see me in shorts. Hmm. Why? I mean, you're a 46 year old man. Why don't you wear shorts? Because in my Franco mind, men don't wear shorts. <laughs> so it's like, and when I see people in shorts, it's like, well, it's okay for them, but I, I have one pair and I never wear it. It's a stupid Franco mind. So huh. I don't know why. Amanda, you've uh, adopted Spain as your home country 20 years ago. What's your take on it as you come in from the United States? It is a a lesson in living history. It really is. Uh, You get to talk to people who lived during the Civil War, who have been in the Franco times, and it it is interesting maybe as a foreigner for people to express maybe more of their Francoist uh, feelings. I was in a taxi going from Escorial to the Valley of the Fallen, where Franco is buried, and the taxi driver felt very, very open about all of his Francoist feelings and how this was a beautiful monument. And I didn't tell him I was living there. I just was asking him questions about how to get there. 
I highly doubt he would have expressed these feelings with these gentlemen here in uh, this room. But he felt so, deep down that um, yeah. this was a, a sacred place yes, and you were going yes. there as a traveling pilgrim almost and mm-hmm. you were going to stand. Or just to teach me, before to the teach me that Franco. it is a perhaps a pilgrimage for some people. Because that is quite a monument, the Valley of the Fallen. It's mm-hmm. the, this massive cavern, bigger than any church I've ever been in, carved out of rock. And at the centerpiece, right up on the altar, is the tomb of, of the right-wing dictator, Franco. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Francisco, have you been there? I've been there a couple of times. Yeah, it's very Franco style. You know, it's a fascist. It's very, fascist. You yeah. see these right-wing fascist angels, and it just says, these people died for God and country. It's just dramatic to me. It's melodramatic. It is about drama, but all of these fascisms, it's drama. And it's like, okay, I'm bigger than life. I am never going to die. Would you go there? It's like, oh my God, whatever on earth. It's a horrible place. But it's a place we need to remember. Federico, what's your take on the Valley of the Fallen and the tomb of Franco buried under a giant granite cross in a huge well, canyon? You know, uh, Rick, I mean, all those dictators, Franco, Salazar, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, all of them, small, small, small men with big, big, big ego problems, you see. That aggressive architecture, you see, a mm-hmm. kind of uh, male chauvinist architecture. Yeah. Really, wow, I mean, those angels that seem to be soldiers rather than angels, you see. And that monument that I have, supposedly, is actually a monument dedicated to all the victims, all the following of the Spanish Civil War. And we obviously know that it's just a monument dedicated to himself, ah, yeah. you see. And nobody will dare nowadays to visit any kind of monument dedicated to Hitler in Germany or uh-huh. Mussolini in Italy. And we still have that. So oh, that is... so Franco gets a huge monument, whereas Mussolini and Hitler don't, in part because... The Franco supporters said this is the monument to everybody. And me, but it was pretty much carved out of that rock by prisoners of Franco. Obviously, all those political prisoners. And, and I, we go farther if I tell you that he deliberately, he chose that place located next to the Escorial Fortress mm-hmm. because he was obsessed about the glory of the Catholic monarchy and Philip II. He tried to make politically that parallelism, you see, between him and Philip II. Mm. And I've been there with Spaniards that say they go to this tomb to make sure he's still dead. <laughs> they stand there. They say, I just come here to make sure Franco is still dead. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Federico Garcia Barroso, Amanda Buttinger, and Francisco Gloria about what's going on in Spain. And we were talking about Spain having these strong regions and people in Andalusia or Catalonia or Basque country saying they're, they're Basque first and Spanish second, perhaps. Maybe if Spain invests in its infrastructure, it'll tie the country a bit more together Francisco, what's Spain doing for its infrastructure investing? You have their perfect point. I mean, infrastructure is a need. For example, in the Basque country where I come from, uh, the Basque parties have always not allowed to have very good infrastructure. And it has taken forever to have a freeway to France. Because communication, it opens people's mind. Traveling is what opens people's minds. So now we have an amazing freeway. And finally, this year... We have the budget to do the high-speed train from Madrid all the way to the Basque Country. Oh, that's great. So you're like, what, three hours from Madrid? We're going to be in less than three hours, a little bit, like two hours and a half. It's going to be like that. I remember when there were no fast trains and no freeways in Spain, and today this AVE is incredible. Federico, what else is going on with infrastructure in Spain? Infrastructure, just to give you a couple of examples, the city of Madrid was awarded just a short Mm -hmm. time ago by the European Union because we have the best public transportation Mm. network in Europe. You see, I and that is it. wonderful for locals and travelers. Didn't you have a mayor nicknamed the Mole? 
for digging all those tunnels? Oh, yes, that's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's not actually <laughs> digging tunnels anymore, but yes. But he was taking the, the parking off of the street and, mm-hmm. and helping the subway expand and taking the traffic away. Exactly. That is actually one of the priorities in all our mayors you see in our cities, to make the old town as much pedestrian as possible. You see walking cities, walking towns, the cars go underneath, you see. What about climate change and things getting hotter? I understand in the old days they used to sell bullfight tickets in the shade and in the sun, and now it's so hot that they've moved the fight time later in the evening where where mm-hmm. everything's in the shade. Has that happened? I think it's about 6 o'clock, yes. That's, a, that's true. That's yeah, true. That is one of the reasons why we do in Spain things later than other people do in Northern Europe, you to see. To avoid the heat. Either to avoid the heat. The sun is shining for so many hours, and we do things a little bit later, and we enjoy a lot of that kind of paseo or whatever leisure activities in the late afternoon, early evening. In Sevilla, evening. they actually have... Um, canopies oh, yeah. spread above the street so you can walk in shade during the day. Yeah, otherwise people are going to die there in July and August. Yeah. It's like stepping into a blast furnace if you're in Sevilla in, uh, in the middle of the day. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Matt's calling from Libertyville in Illinois. Hey, Matt. Hello, Rick, and hola a todos. I really appreciate all that you guys are doing for us here. I studied abroad in Sevilla in 1997 and was able to actually go back this past year on the 20th anniversary with my family, and I just adore Sevilla, and it re-inspired kind of my passion for Spain, the people, and the warmth of the culture. One area that I never was able to travel up to, we, we traveled extensively around Andalusia, Madrid, and Barcelona, was up to the north and northwest of Madrid. And so as we looked at it, logistically, it's a little bit harder to get around. And I'm curious with your wonderful guests if they have a suggestion of places to visit and not to miss when you think of San Sebastian and Burgos and Bilbao and Salamanca. So places to the north and northwest that I haven't yet accessed. Mm, That's a great point because there's also uh, Lyon and um, Pamplona, which is uh, Francisco's town. I'd love to hear a favorite town in the northwest of Spain. One that's uh, not San Sebastian, where a lot of tourists go. <laughs> so, uh, Amanda, what would be Say, one that's uh, often overlooked? Santiago de Compostela. I know that it is a touristic mm-hmm. town, but I believe it has a, lo- a beautiful story, and it's the end of the, the pilgrimage, the St. James pilgrimage, and, and it's a beautiful place. Even if you're not doing mm. the pilgrimage, it's a beautiful place to visit and feel the history. In the mm, There's so much history there, and, of course, the Camino ends there, and mm-hmm. there's so much joy after those pilgrims come in every morning. I love mm-hmm. to watch the entry into the city by the pilgrims trekking from many all the way from Paris, and uh, the weather is so Irish-like there that the, mm. the stones <laughs> have a green moss on them, and it's just, you don't expect that in Spain, but exactly. that's uh, exactly. uh, Santiago de Compostela. Uh, Francisco, in your corner of the country, what's something that uh, people often don't appreciate? To me, I think one of the things that people don't appreciate are the Pyrenees. The mm. Pyrenees is one of the beautiful, beautiful mountain ranges all around Europe, on the west side, it's not very high, while in Catalonia, on the eastern part of the Pyrenees, are very, very high. So if you are into climbing, you go to the Catalonia mm-hmm. Pyrenees. If you like hiking, come to the Basque Country, because it's very mild, very soft, and you're going to find very good food, very good hiking, everything is very well prepared. In Pamplona, where you live, is kind of a jumping-off point for yeah. beautiful... Um, from beautiful Pamplona, Western. in less than 50 minutes, you're in any of the big valleys that we have over What's there. What's the favorite valley for you and why? Uh, it's called Bazan, B-A-Z-T-A-N. Mm-hmm. It's uh, very open. It's there are a lot of mist and fogs, and it's where all the Basque mythology takes place. Ah. It's beautiful nature. You have natural caves that you can visit. It's incredible. And mountain huts. So if you're hiking, you can sleep up there. Yes, you yeah. can have that. Also now, it's the big thing in that part is the agriturismo. 
tell us about that in Spain. We know agriturismo in Italy. So uh, we call them casas rurales, rural homes, uh-huh. which is people homes that they open to, you can rent a room, or you can rent the whole apartment, the whole house. Normally they're very big houses. And okay. is it a, a working farm? Yeah, some of them are working farms, mm-hmm. and you get to be with a family. It's and it's a cliche of Basque culture. It's not cliche. It is what it is. People people <laughs> wear a little black beret. The berets. And <laughs> up in there, in the, in the north, we are very direct people, so we will approach you very strongly. Uh-huh. People at the beginning are a little bit overwhelmed, because if you've been in Seville, everybody's very open. Here, we we tend to be a little bit more quiet. Could very you, nice people. Could you, if you went to a very remote place, could you find somebody who speaks Basque but does not speak Spanish? Not that they don't speak Spanish, but they're, they're going to have a lot of trouble speaking Spanish. Federico, an advice for uh, Matt about a place that might not be appreciated adequately in northwest Spain. Yeah, what can I say? We they already said everything about Santiago, about your wonderful land, Navarra. You see the Pyrenees. Let's talk about a couple of places, a couple of places that are actually just between, you know, the Basque entry and uh, Galicia. And those two little provinces are Santander and Asturias. Mm-hmm. People just go there to enjoy nature, nice beaches and, and nice mountains. I love those two towns called Santander and Gijón. Those places where some members of the Spanish nobility used to go there in the late 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s, and you still find there in those towns and in the outskirts of those towns those kinds of elegant hotels mm. uh, for those days that nowadays are actually quite affordable, you see. Bell some epic of the, hotels. Oh, yeah, with spas, you see. Yeah. And, and, and that is something that I really like and enjoy. There you go, Matt. Some good advice from our guides. Thank you so much. Is there a best way to transport around there? Would you suggest train, car, bus? What's the most convenient? Francisco? If you can rent a car, it's yeah. always perfect because that way you can go into the tiny little roads and get the real lessons. If not, it's very well connected by bus. Okay, thank you so much. I All cannot right. wait to plan my next trip. Happy travels, Matt. Thanks for the call. Our tour guide friends have been getting us up to date on Spain on Travel with Rick Steves. American Amanda Buttinger has lived in Madrid now for 20 years. Francisco Glaria's work includes balcony views for the running of the bulls in his hometown, Pamplona. His website is pamplonafiesta.com. And Federico Garcia Barroso provides themed tours of Madrid and the Castile region for individuals and family groups. His website is spainfred.com. I'd like to just close this discussion just with something that you're particularly proud of about Spain or, or something you'd like to personally enjoy sharing? Do you have, as a teacher, as a tour guide, what do you want to be sure that your American visitor experiences? Amanda? What I like to talk about with my groups that I bring is to just really pay attention to each of the personalities of each of the cities, even if it's within the same region. Focus on the monuments, but also look at the people and really watch how they move, watch how they dress. Uh, it's one country, but it has so many different types of styles and, and customs. It's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Francisco. For me, when, when tourists come, I, I always ask them to think that how much Spain has changed in the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. When you see all the freedom, all the people in the streets talking about politics, demonstrating and everything. Remember, 40 years ago, if you didn't go to mass, you were shot. Try to see Spain with that point of view, mm-hmm. with a, a country that has changed from a very restrictive Society since since the dictator Franco. Yeah. Since Franco died, mm-hmm. yeah, to today, which is a perfectly free country where you can do whatever you want to do. Boy, that is something to celebrate. So many people focus on the negative headlines, but when you travel, you realize the world is just filled with joy and, and triumphs and love and wonderful communities. Federico. 
it's all said, you know, Spain is not anymore the land of the Spanish Inquisition. Spain is a, politically, socially, it's a very, very liberal country in many, many ways. One of the things that I can see how many American and Canadian travelers they enjoy is to see how we do a lot of outdoor life. You see, that is something that we are, even us as Spaniards, when we go to kind of a sister country like Italy, we say, wow, we don't see so many Italians on the streets. You see, and the thing is that in Spain, you find people everywhere at any time in the streets. And that is wonderful. You nailed it. I just love that. Anywhere I go in Spain, whether I want to be part of the stroll or if I just want to sit and enjoy a coffee and watch the stroll, it's a beautiful, vibrant, and multi-generational sort of festival of life. Federico Garcia Barroso, Amanda Buttinger, Francisco Gloria, gracias. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tappen, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Rick produces updated walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find the latest ones in Rick's Audio Europe travel app. Look for it at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.